Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let God be in our thoughts and words and deeds. Send your Holy Spirit to guide us that we may complete your will. Grace responding to grace. May the beauty of our work inspire those who see it to love as Christ loved, that through worship of you and charity to others, all may know his peace and joy through Christ our Lord. Amen. Right. Uh, well done to those who've stayed the course. Um, I thought I would, uh, this week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the actual discernment process. And just to uh, set the scene again, I'll just give you another little story. Remember that the the, the way this works is that we just take the first step, and then once we've done the first step, the, the door will open to the second, is, is, if, if this is meant to be. Just to uh, give you a sense of how this has happened to me, I uh, was very interested in trying to be an artist. I, I've told you about that. And I read John Paul II's letter to artists and set off for America, and I, I think I mentioned a little bit about this, where, of course, the streets are paved with gold, uh, people are rolling in money, that's the vision we have in, in Britain, and so I just thought, I'll just meet someone and he'll pay, or he or she will pay for an art school, and this will happen. My brother was living in the US, I had friends in the US, so I came over here. Of course, it didn't quite happen like that. I ended up uh, being directed back to England to meet my mentor, Stratford Caldicott. But in the process of this, um, I did, while I was staying with my brother, he lives here in the East Bay, actually. So, And this was 2001. Uh, I remember that airfares were very cheap. All the planes were empty because it wasn't long after 9-11. So uh, I, I came over in an empty airliner. And um, I was just sort of reassessing my goals at this stage. And... I decided by this time, it had dawned on me that I, um, as well as being an artist, I did want to uh, start to uh, open or at least create art schools. As I'd realized that the, the art school didn't exist, so perhaps I should found one and enlist as its first student. And then gradually it dawned on me that I would have to be the teacher, so I'd have to be, learn to be the artist. And also, there didn't seem to be any articulation of um, a theory of Catholic culture, of art, and how this fitted in with it. And so I just decided, okay, I, I, I want to find out about this. And, and then I remember thinking that if God was behind this, then uh, the, all of this is so unlikely. I might as well go for the, bit, the most unlikely thing. I, why not aim to transform Western culture and make it once again a culture of beauty and just aim for that and just see where it where it takes me. Um, I still wanted to be an artist, and uh, so I put down my artistic aims, and my goal uh, 
uh, was to, uh, I don't think I've told the story. I can't remember which ones I've told and I haven't, but my goal was to have a painting in the London Oratory. And uh, as far as I was concerned, this was the ultimate thing that could happen. It had been so influential because it's beautiful liturgy and the wonderful preaching that the oratorians um, do in the church that I just thought if I am commissioned to paint a painting there, uh, that would be the, the final uh, goal for my painting career. If I've done that, I'll be satisfied. And uh, so I wrote this down. I, I did what you know, had been suggested. I wrote down this, this aim of transforming Western culture and having a painting in the Brompton Oratory. I then caught the plane back. And uh, just to show you how long ago it was in the days of answer machines, in, uh, on my answer phone uh, in my flat in London, there was a, a message from one of the fathers of the London Oratory. So they knew roughly that uh, I was an artist. They knew that I could paint a bit. But uh, one of the fathers said, we'd like you to come in. We want to discuss a commission. And so this was waiting for me when I got back in England. And uh, there'd been a newly beatified oratorium called St. Luigi Scrossoppi, and they wanted to commission a painting, um, a large painting, six foot by three foot. I'd never sold a painting in my life at this stage. And so I went in and I, was, I discussed it with them and I was asked to do a mock-up. So I did something you know, three feet by one and a half feet, or less than that, probably about a foot and a half. So it's just, just a piece of paper that size. And when they saw it, they said, yes, we'd like to uh, commission this. Now, I didn't know what to charge. I didn't want to charge so little that I did myself out of money. I wanted it to be a reasonable price. I didn't want to charge so much that it put them, put them off. I wanted this commission. This would be a high-profile commission and you know i would have been so pleased to have a work of art hanging in this church and so i spoke to father ronald who was the, the my contact there uh, before i went in to meet the provost of the london oratory um, and he said oh you must charge a reasonable price so i agonized over it and i said i said i'm going to charge 800 800 pounds and so we had the discussion, and then Father Ignatius, the provost, uh, turned to me and said, so what will you charge for this? And I said, rather nervously, £800. And he said, I'm very sorry, he said, but we can't go above 2500 So I said, OK, 2500 <laughs> And he said, OK, done. <laughs> uh, and then he joked and said, you drive a hard bargain. And effectively, he sort of argued me up. Um, and I felt very pleased about this until I handed the painting over. I hired this van and drove up, and it was a, on a wooden panel, six feet by three feet, quite large and uh, heavy. And so I picked up Father Ignatius in this hired van, and we drove straight to the framers in South Kensington, a very posh part of West London. And we went to the framers, and he went straight to the most ornate, uh, gilded Baroque frame in the shop. And they have, in, in framing shops, so, you know, you have little samples of corners. Then you pick your, your frame and then they make it to order. And uh, so he went to a, a frame that was, it stood six inches out from the wall. It was so chunky, this Baroque frame. 
that I'd only ever seen in museums. I couldn't believe it was going around my, my painting. And so th they measured it up and made an estimate. And so Father Ignatius said to the framer, how much will this cost? And the framer said, uh, that will be four and a half thousand pounds. <laughs> and so immediately, the, I should have asked for a lot more for my, for my painting, but nevertheless, I was pretty pleased. But the, the point about that is that that was the first one I did. And actually, I, I think I could do a lot better job now. But once I had uh, a painting in the oratory, I felt more focused on the other aim, which was to open art school. I, feel, I felt as though I'd sort of achieved what I wanted to do in art in a way, even though I had a lot of, you know, I still had a long way to go to be a better artist. But it also gave me a, an authority when I went to talk to people. So uh, if I told them that I had a commission in the London Oratory, people would listen to me when I described my ideas for an art school. And that's exactly what happened. It, it's, it's opened doors for me. It's also helped me get my, my green card. I told you a story about that in the past, uh, you know, my, my appearing in uh, the newspapers and everything. But it, it really was the case. I, I'd articulated this dream and it, and it had come true. So let's go back to the process a little bit, and I'll describe how I began this journey of actually making the discernment. So we left off last week with these spiritual exercises of uh, looking at resentments and fears, and uh, as we heard from Dino, actually, uh, revealing our darkest thoughts. And so what I then had to do was incorporate this into my daily routine and I heard someone talk just this past week, actually, beautifully about this from the Eastern Church, um, how when we participate in the sacrament of confession, that participation almost uh, takes itself out to so many of the, the venial sins, if you like, the lesser sins, so that just the act of acknowledging them in, in the course of the day, so many times I'm aware that I've thought something, uh, re responded in a way that's self-centered. Uh, the, the act of doing that and praising God can lead to that forgiveness, and we can just move on. So we don't have to bring all of the minutiae to confession. But we, In a sense, we bring that sacrament out with us through the grace of God. Uh, I, do, I, I tend to go monthly. But this is the great luxury of this process. It works in harmony with the uh, the formal confession, if you like, of, of the church and leads to a, a, a wonderful, happy life. I have to say, we've got no further than this. Um, and so I've listed the harms I've done. I've made amends. And then if I harm people or if I do anything, if I do something in the course of the day where I, I need to make amends, then I will do that as well. So it begins, it's the beginning of new habits for life. Now, the other thing that is relevant to my story, um, and in a sense, I've stressed this in the book far more than David did um, in the light of my experience. And that is that um, it's one thing to do these spiritual exercises, and I've seen them change people's lives, even if they don't eventually come to the faith. Uh, but I think the fullness of, of happiness is through the Catholic faith, and all of this is leading to our worship of God. And I saw a, a, 
wonderful series of talks that are on the Western province of the Dominicans, uh, their website done by Father Brad Elliott and uh, Father Thomas Aquinas, uh, the, the, uh, were the names, on the virtue of religion. So this is, they're drawing on St. Thomas, as Dominicans tend to do, but the point they were making is that this is the highest virtue, um, and it is one that we follow if we reflect on our faith, that it isn't always absolutely instinctive. It's something that, um, in the course of reflection, we feel this desire to worship God, which is what the virtue of religion is. And of course, how do we worship God? Um, which worship is the the most profound uh, interaction, if you like, with God, the, the exchange of love. And we don't know how to do it. We need God to reveal that to us. And that's what religion is for. And if I do it, I do it in the way that God asks me to do it, because I have no real sense of how to worship God fully without that, and then somebody else is doing it at the same time, then we have an organized religion. And so this is the way that when I take people through this process, even if they're not religious, I describe this innate, this desire within us that this process stimulates, that's always there in potential to worship God as the fulfillment of, our, of a happy life, in a sense, the consummation of everything else. Uh, life gets better regardless, even if I don't do that, but it gets better still with that. And that is why uh, it, we need religion um, as well as an external moral authority. And then just one more thing on that, uh, which is, again, is very much my personal, uh, has come out of my personal experience that I didn't get directly from David, is that there's a, there, there can be a, the question is, how do you introduce people to this? If you can get people to Mass or to the, the, the Divine Liturgy on Sundays, that's great. And you hope that the, uh, it's well celebrated and it inspires something in them to want to go again. That's what happened to me. Uh, but there, are, there is a stepping stone um, that lay people can do, um, and that is the Liturgy of the Hours. So it's, it's an easy step in many ways from reading and contemplating uh, in contemplative prayer, shall we say, scripture, and then the Psalms, and then to actually pray the Psalms, and then to pray it in a structured way with others. And uh, I live in a, with a group of people in a, what's a building that used to be a convent. And so there's a small crowd of us here, and every Monday... I, at my instigation, and sometimes people come, they don't always come, uh, usually there's a few there, we pray Vespers and we sing the Psalms and we chant. And I can invite people to that, even if they're not Catholic, people from Protestant backgrounds, I just say we're, we're chanting, this is scriptural, we're chanting the Psalms. And if you do it in traditional chant, whatever form it might be, whether Eastern or Western, you can even, it, it appeals to people's sort of new agey tendencies, if I can call it that. It has this mystery about it without being threatening in a way that the mass can be. And I'd much rather do that, which is uh, praying the Psalms is an extension of the mass. It is part of the liturgical worship of the church, rather than um, something 
that's uh, I think the phrase is syncretistic, like Teze or something like that. I um, I don't know too much about it, but these things which are almost filling the gap of a sort of a liturgical desire, but that aren't fully liturgical. Um, we have the liturgy of the hours, and that can fulfill that need. It can be the perfect stepping stone into uh, the Mass on Sunday. It's also uh, the perfect stepping stone out of the Mass into daily living in, com in combination with this daily routine of prayer and meditation and good works. And it, the, the Church tells us that the purpose of the Liturgy of the Hours, it's in, in the general instruction, uh, it says uh, that it is to sanctify the day. It, in some ways, it's too rich a diet for many of us to go to Mass and then to somehow bring that out into our daily living. It, the divide, for me, I, many of you I'm sure are fine, but for me, it's, it's not always easy to bring that out and feel as though I can apply what I'm getting, if you like, in daily living. And the Liturgy of the Hours introduces a, a rhythm of prayer into the day, which I always feel almost injects it with grace. I, that's the only way I can describe my sense of it. And, and it's fueled at its heart by the Sunday worship. So it's taking it into the days and up into the hours for each day. And so I think, therefore, that that's a great way to introduce people to the virtue of religion. And so just for example, uh, something else which we do here, and again, this is at my instigation largely, is we have monthly social events. Um, this, uh, Dr. Michel Akkad, who teaches for Pontifex University, is going to give a talk on Aristotle and the nation state. So this is some ideas he has. So he's going to come and give a talk, but we're going to invite people who we think are interested, and we have a potluck, so we have a meal, which, you know, is sort of linked to a sort of liturgical gathering in some way. And then we have Vespers. So it's going to be potluck, Vespers, talk. And I try and uh, build up this uh, participation in the activities of community. Um, and through these various connection points, some, somebody might come along to that. And then through that, um, I might introduce them to the, the Vision for You process or they might be ready to go to Mass, or they might want to go to the weekly Vespers, where that's all we do, just the Vespers on Mondays, for example. So I try, um, I'm not going to, we haven't got hundreds of people lining up. I don't want to exaggerate this. But these are the ideas that I have for trying to find contact points, if you like, for people to whom I can introduce the other aspects of the full Christian life. And I just trust in the Holy Spirit that some people are going to be attracted first to one thing, some people first to another. And so it's just something to think about. And um, you will have, all of you, charisms, special gifts for organizing <laughs> and participating in some aspect of that for the benefit of the, of the community around you and the parish. And so I do what seems to come naturally to me. and. You know, that's that's one of the things we search for. OK, so now the discernment process. Uh, and this was really uh, the fun part. I've got those the, the description of it in a sheet. You've had it in a handout. Um, I think there are, there are eight uh, principles, spiritual exercise four, eight steps to a life beyond your wildest dream, I've said here. 
And so you can read through that. But I think what I'll do is just articulate again, as I have, without just reading this out to you, uh, the, the general idea. So it did begin with this question, what would you like to do? And I just said, paint. And David said, okay, that's what you should do. And the, the idea here is that it's not, the, the question is not, what are you good at? And I think I mentioned that I, I brought this process up with a number of spiritual directors who have happened to meet, people who are experienced in spiritual directing. And all of them affirmed that this is a, a good way of going about it, actually. But none of them asked me whether I was any good at painting. And I, I was always curious, aren't you interested as to whether I could paint or not? And they just said, no, that'll come. Uh, you'll learn to do that. Uh, what you want to find is what you enjoy. And in the end, probably you're going to be good at it. And even if you're not, you're going to be, if you enjoy it, you'll be prepared to put the work in and learn to do it. Um, so most of it, as, as Edison said, is you know it's 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. But if that perspiration is fun, then it's it, it merges into the inspirational part as well. So I, I did that. I, and my first move was one that was uh, easy for me. So I don't burn all my bridges. I don't give up the job. I have to put food on the table. So I just, every Wednesday... I just signed on for an evening class, a drawing class. And from that, I met people and things began to open up. I've told you some of those stories. One of the questions that um, I am asked, to the extent that some people are afraid even to go through this process because they're worried about what I might ask them to do in a way, is what if I've got a career, so I'm well-established in this, uh, this sounds great for somebody who is about to go to college or someone who's just leaving college and the, the, you know, the, the field of their life is wide open before them. What's, what about those who are uh, later on in life? And maybe they need to work to support a family. They, you know, they can't just simply jump ship and uh, go and join an artist colony, colony in you know, upper New York State or something for the summer. Well, the answer is that as David put it to me, uh, we're all entitled to a world, a life be, uh, that you know is beyond what we are capable of imagining, and it doesn't say except for those who have families um, and have to earn a living. <laughs> uh, th this is open to everybody, and we just do something that we're able to do. So I've been talking to a guy recently who uh, phoned me up and. He is uh, maybe interested in writing. He's not quite sure. Um, his wife just had their third child, and he's not in a position to start devoting large amounts of time to doing things. So he's just, I think he's starting to do a little bit of blogging or writing once a week. He's just carved out an hour. <laughs> That's all he can manage at this time, where he's doing something of the activity that he thinks he might like. And if you start with that, then we don't know what the rest of the path is. God will, will show us. Something will happen. Um, and with things like the Internet nowadays, you never know who's going to discover you. It's amazing. that I've done these uh, psalm tones uh, as part of – that's another thing I did, by the way. Um, as with everything I've done, um, I, my philosophy is if I think I can do it at least as badly as anybody else, I'll try and do it myself. And um, I couldn't find psalm tones in English that I was happy with. 
So I thought, okay, I'm just going. You know, I got started with the recorder, trying to work out how to read Gregorian chant, and I just tried to develop some adaptations of Gregorian tones without having any background in it. Uh, yesterday, I was contacted by an Italian who wanted to teach a community in Pakistan how to sit, how to chant the office in English, and he'd come across the tones I'd written on my website. And he wondered if I had any pointers for him and any more materials. So I sent that off to him, and I don't know what's going to happen. So amazing things can happen. And uh, you just need to have that, that faith that anything is possible with God. And remember at the same time that through this process, we can start to enjoy today, even with when we're doing the things that aren't our wildest dreams. So that job which I'm feeling slightly dissatisfied with, I, I will start to enjoy that more. That was my experience. I, I didn't immediately give it up and become an artist. This was a slow, steady transition. Okay, so that's people with jobs, commitments, and families. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the, the, the other thing is that generally there are a couple of ways of discerning uh, vocation. One is what am I good at? You ask the question, what, what, what am I good at? Uh, this is slightly different. This says, what do I like to do? And, and there's a lot of overlap, I think, between the answers to those questions for most, most people. The, the great thing about this is that you just answer it as best you can. Everybody likes to do something. It's not asking, what job do I want to do? It's just saying, what do I like to do? And it may be that nobody earns a living doing this, and you might be the first one. And in a sense, I, the, the things that I do, the combination of the things that I do, I've never seen anybody do this and earn a living from it before. Um, it's just sort of happened to me. Uh, the other thing that would tend to happen, this was in London when I met David, and quite a lot of the people who, who were there, and I imagine it would be the same if you're down in L.A., uh, a lot, a huge number of these young people want to be either rock stars or actors. So yeah, that that was the sort of people who'd be attracted to something like this. They're trying, they're, they're striving for the dream. And so David would say to them, "Well, why why do you want to do that?" Um, and of course, fame and fortune is not uh, a good reason to do it. They're not things that are bad in themselves, but they're not the reasons that we want to do it. Because the point about this is that, you know, you can't do fame and fortune. It's not an activity. You, you know, supposing you get it, you still got to do something with your time. So you're still faced with that question, what am I going to do? So if you like composing songs and performing, then it might be that you aim to be a, a singer or songwriter or something like that in whatever genre you're interested in, as long as it's not intrinsically sinful. And I'm not against modern forms of music uh, in general. I mean, some of it is uh, is definitely inciting people to behave badly, but not all of it. And it's possible that, you know, one of these people, one of you, might be the one who engages with these forms and transforms it into something that is powerful, not just for turning people away from God, but turning them towards it. All of these things can be transformed. So, but the the act what is the activity of a successful pop singer it's singing it's practicing it's uh it's working hard at crafting a song it's understanding what to do even if you're doing what sound, sound like relatively 
simple songs. So if those are the sort of things that really make you feel fulfilled, David would say, go for it. Just make a start somewhere. And then if you're going to do it, there's no reason why you shouldn't be aimed to be very successful. And that, if that involves fame and fortune and you're meant to do it, you'll be able to handle it. You know, the, the, this is, but it's a secondary, it's, it's a secondary thing. I'm, I'm going to try and end a little bit earlier. I, I'm, I imagine people have questions about this, but there's, there's a, there are a couple more things I want to say about this as well. The, the first one is that, uh, in a way, this sounds a little bit like um, some of these positive thinking books. I don't know if any of you come across these. So the, the sort of uh, the first one that really caught on was a, a book written in the 30s by a guy called Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. I don't, I don't know if any of you heard of that. And then more recently, a bestseller called The Secret. And there's a whole string of these things. And a lot of sales motivational theory, I, I, I'm guessing, has come out of these. Now, the, the basic premise of these things, um, I, I started to look at these because a lot of people who were, in, were, doing, were listening to David would start to investigate uh, these sort of books. And um, I, I suppose I believe there's something to it, but there's something crucially wrong with the way that most people who read these books seem to follow uh, their dreams, if I can put it like that. Um, these are, tend to be positive thinking programs. And the premise of this is that whatever I think is going to happen. So if I imagine a pile of a million dollars, Napoleon Hill even says this, start to almost imagine you can feel the money and all this sort of thing. First of all, there's, there's less focus on whether this is a good, intrinsically good or bad or sinful. So even if it were true, uh, it might be corrupting the person. So we have to really focus on that much more strongly. The second thing is that while we are teleological as people, we do have dreams, we don't make them happen. It isn't the dream that makes it. We're responding to a call that comes from God. And what these do, the, the chapter where I analyze this, and this is my personal sort of analysis, is called Think and Grow Greedy. Um, which I, tends to, I think tends to happen with these things in that um, there is this belief, if, if, if I suffer from bad luck, um, first of all, you become almost neurotic about, I've got to be positive, I've got to be positive, the slightest negative thought. This isn't what I'm offering and what I was given is not a positive thinking program. It's a faith program, which is a form of positive thinking, but it's one that, where we have faith in God, in the, you know, the ultimate positive force, if you like. And it is a positive action program. So we do certain things that are consistent with that. But if it doesn't happen, it, it might not be my fault, okay? Um, if In these programs, if you suddenly suffer misfortune, all you can do is read the book again and then double down on the positive thinking. And, th and they, they would say, somewhere along the line, you're letting doubt creep in. Now, in this program, there's always doubt. We're never certain about what's going to happen. We don't know for sure what the outcome is because we're trusting in God. And ultimately, the, the, the outcome is in God's hands. And we trust that whatever it is will be good for us because God 
is the author of all that happens to me or permits it so that a greater good can come out of it. Um, so uh, we're always striving for these good things, but we are happy regardless of whether or not we get them. All this is doing is giving us a direction in life. What these positive thinking programs do is they invert the power hierarchy. So in other words, they tend to allude to a spiritual power, something beyond the material, but they say, I control it. It's at the service of me if I think positively. And that is likely to, to lead to corruption or failure, I would say. And so there is a crucial difference here between what was given to me and a lot of these books, which in some ways superficially sound different. What I would say is that these, that this program is, is better than any of those because with God, anything is possible if it's good for us. So you, can, you can't think positively about something you can't imagine. This allows us to some things to happen which are beyond our imagination. Remember that the, the telos, the, the goal, which has to be consistent with our call from God, um, is simply directing us. And ultimately, we don't know what is on that path. And there's every reason to believe it might be greater than what we want. But even if we do get something that is not what we want, and there's always some things in the day or in the course of our lives like that, we, we are equipped to deal with it with dignity and peace and joyfully um, even uh, in the way that the saints are joyful in the face of misfortune. That's the ideal that we can strive for. Okay, I, I think there's one other thing that I just want to talk about in uh, regard to this. And I did mention this before. Remember that right at the start, one of the conditions that David insisted on my agreeing to was that I, I should be ready to pass this on to other people, to offer it to anyone who was interested, if I felt that it worked for me. And he said, furthermore, that um, this really is how it works, you know, that all the gifts we get from God, they evaporate if we don't uh, strive to make them available to others too. And the, way, the best analogy I ever heard was somebody saying it's a bit like hitting a, a seam of gold, which we can mine endlessly, uh, the only condition being that we give away all the gold that we, we mine. And... Um, this is really important because that what's fueling this is love. And where love is, God is present. And so uh, we establish a relationship with a loving God. And God, we make God present in our lives and in the lives of us through charity to others. In every aspect of our lives, we're more capable of doing that. It's, it's a positive feedback process. The more we do it, the better able we are to do it. And the more, in turn, more fruitfully we can do it going forward. Um, so it's a positive cycle. But if we forget that, then the whole thing can grind to a halt and we can get caught up in all the sort of mechanics of this process. But if we haven't learned that this is about showing charity, love to God and our fellows, uh, then we miss really the, the, the most important point of all of this. For, and it is that that converts all of this introspection, if you like, and analysis into a, an, uh, a joyful life. Okay, I, 
I'll stop there a little earlier. I'm just thinking that the people may have questions about the process. And so we'll just see what people come up with. Excellent. Thank you, Professor Clayton. I know there's a couple of questions already coming in. Let's do this thing. So first is from Denise. So Denise is saying, uh, first of all, extending her gratitude to you, Professor Clayton, for uh, spending the past three weeks with us. Um, and she's really excited about the process. She, she is um, kind of uh, very hopeful about what it's going to do uh, for her. But she's wondering, her question is, where do we find our own David? And is there a list of possible sponsors, like per area, that maybe she could get in contact with? Um, do you have any other advice? Is this something that you need to be with going through the process with a person? And I'll just add to that. I know you have a book on this. Um, would that be sufficient for somebody to go through the process? You can talk on that. Well, yes. The, the ideal is that you find someone who's done it. And there aren't a lot of those at the moment. Um, so what I would say is buy the book, read it. Feel free to contact me and ask questions. If I know of somebody in your area, there's a small but growing number of people who've been through this process. I'll put them in touch with you. That's the best we can do. All I would say is that at this stage, if, if you do your best and no one is available, it's, it's in accordance with the principle that's behind this. Do what you can and God will do the rest. But I would say that if you ask me questions at the very least, I, you know, email me. You, you can get in touch with me through the information there. Um, I will do my best to help you. I can always answer specific questions or things that aren't clear particular to your situation, I'll do my best to help you. If you're in uh, the, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, <laughs> then you can come and see me and uh, we can talk. But um, th there are ways of doing this. Um, and my hope actually is that through this, we might get a, a group of people. It's possible to, to do this via Zoom video conferencing. And so uh, I'm starting to do that at the moment. But that is probably the weakness in all of this. I think you just have to do the best you can. If you have questions about any particular aspects of it, I'll try and help you. Um, and then with regard to somebody to reveal this stuff to, uh, that's something where the person who you're telling it to doesn't need to understand deeply the process. They, they just need to be prepared to hear you listen to it. So if you find a, a good and trusted friend, and I do explain this in the book, who, even if they haven't shown you the rest of the program, they're, they're effectively prepared to be your confessor. That's great. Uh, what I would say is don't, it, this is very detailed. And if you brought it to a priest in confession, because of the way it's presented, they would probably struggle to understand what you're doing. You need a sort of general account of the detail in the book that, as I say, I go to confession monthly. And unless the priest understands deeply what he's listening to in this process, um, it, he's likely to comment, I think, and wonder what you're doing. You need to know a priest very well. I wouldn't just randomly take it to confession, uh, the, the analysis that I would describe. There's kind of two questions along this vein. One is from Maureen, who's asking, what if you're dealing with somebody who's like, you know, really, uh, truly atheistic, right? And why would they even, they get to the point where we're telling them or instructing them or they're reading the book. 
that uh, they need to be kneeling down and praying to God, even if they didn't believe it. I mean, is it really realistic that they're going to do that? Is that just one of the limits to this method? And we just accept that limit? Maybe you could speak on that. Yeah, so I was one of those people. And and so I did it. The the way that there's there's a couple of things here. What drew me to this was not an argument that I needed it or I ought to do it or it would be good for me. I met David and he basically started to talk about his life and what had happened in his life and said, if you're interested, I can show you what I was told. So there was a basic curiosity there. And so much of that is just. It's, you're being more reactive or as much reactive as active. Um, if you're happy, people will want to know why, one way or another. Some will. And you don't know who that's going to be. There are many people I see who I think could benefit from this. And the, I don't bring it up with them and because I, that if you start to push it on people, they'll dig their heels in and do the opposite. Once people want to do it, then... My feeling was, well, okay, you've convinced me there's something in this, but I don't believe. I I was willing to believe. I was open to it because I wanted to look the benefits. But actually, that's a lot easier than it sounds. You just say you don't have to believe. You just have to be willing enough to do what is to do the things that are consistent with belief. This is, remember, Pascal's wager. Uh, Try it and and see whether it works. Now, People who want uh, are at the point where they're ready to change their lives uh, will 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 be prepared to do this. So I have come across a lot of people who were atheists, but once they got to know me for some reason, you know, they would I would I would give them little bits of information without putting them on the spot. I just say, well, I did this process. I used to be very miserable, uh, and I was shown a process that enabled me to be an artist and. And then I kind of wait for them to show an interest, and then I will gradually give them more and just see how far it can go. But it's, uh, I don't know if you use this phrase, but like tickling a trout, you know, you're very gently sort of drawing them in so that they barely feel as though they're being pulled. And so you're as much responding to an interest as you are pushing it on people. This becomes difficult with members of the family, for example, who we just hope it might convert them or something like that. And very often, you, you, you have to be patient. You have to let them ask you. Just trying to push it on people who are unwilling will have, will have the opposite effect. Yeah, Jane, go for it. Is this appropriate for children, or do you, is there a particular age that it would be best to introduce this? It certainly is. I mean, they need to be able to understand the instructions. And what I would do is, uh, at the very least, you can start to introduce the idea that um, when you're cross with somebody, use the language that is that they're going to understand. So you're going to have to adapt it and meet them where they are. But it is one of those things that, for example, if 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 they're interested and you can, they can do the daily routine as part of their daily prayers. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Just to pray for the person who's annoying them, uh, introduces at a deep level, actually, this idea that I am going to change if I'm going to feel better about this person. I can't. It's, that's the message it's giving. And it may be that they, they have to be a little older 
if you're actually going to explain that analysis of resentments. But even then, you can ex give broad principles, just describe in simplify it so that they can understand it and gradually grow into it. But if they can understand the instruction to get on their knees and pray and say, please, God, look after me, then they can make a start. Yes, uh, Macrina, go for it. I learned chanting uh, at ICC session. Yes. And uh, not Sunday Mass, the daily Mass, when we pray uh, Lord's Prayer, and I imitated what I learned, like that uh, Our Father who art in heaven. And I just started uh, chanting, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And people liked it. And they asked me, oh, where, where did you learn? So I just told them. So I was really looking for uh, how I can learn. Well, uh, that's very interesting because um, if you can do nothing else, I would do what you have just done. Uh, and that is uh, just, uh, well, in Latin, they'd say recto tono, which is just Latin for we sing on the, the same note. But you could just do it like that, and then you can chant, and it's actually easy, easy, even easier than talking. And if you just do that with the songs, that is legitimate chant, and it, and I think it's better than saying it. It's it's somehow it's it it feels like a, a deeper prayer if you just do that. What you do is you can just learn some simple modulations at the end, like that. And you can just instinctively apply them to other things. And while it might, you might think that's very dull, when you're singing them, because you're praying, remember, this is not a performance of song. It isn't. It's almost um, the simplicity of it is, uh, w works because you, anything that is repeated over and over again, if it was too complicated, it would become irritating. But if it's simple, it bears repetition. And so I would, I'm glad you did that. that that's, you just give it a go. And um, I always say, uh, if, you're, if you're not scared of your own voice in the shower, you can do this. I have one problem. I have some friends around. They ask me to teach them. And I say, I cannot teach you because I have to learn first. Okay. Go to my website. I, I, I'm, there may be many other things, but. Um, my website, thewayofbeauty.org, has a, a, a page, psalm, slash psalm tones, and that gives you, there's a, there's a teaching video, and there are materials. It's, uh, for some reason, I can't load the materials up onto the page very well, but some will be downloaded. But if you contact me, I will email you links to all the materials that I have. Do go check that talk out. I'll link it again in the email, but there was a talk on this very thing. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.